Good morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. First book in the New Testament. Two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Old Testament takes about two-thirds. New Testament takes about, about third. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to verses 1 through 17. So we transition from the last few months, going through Old Testament books, specifically the Minor Prophets, Joel and Malachi, into, so Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament, and here we come to the first book of the New Testament. In my Bible, it's literally one page turn, one page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, in reality, it was about 400 years, so Malachi's prophecy ended the Old Testament, and then they had to wait 400 years to figure out what the next step was. And the book of Matthew, not chronologically, but uh, in the story, is the next book. It's the next page. It's the next chapter in the story of God saving the world. And what it does, like every good storyteller, it connects the old part of the story with the new part of the story. And answers, partly answers one of the biggest questions that Christians have. What does the Old Testament have to do with the New Testament? Amen. And we'll see that God answers that question. So, as we start on this new book, uh, it's 28 chapters long, and so it'll take us maybe a year to get through. So, what is it? What kind of book is it? So, Malachi, as we remember, was a, basically a long sermon from Malachi to the people of Israel. The book of Matthew is not like that. The book of Matthew actually has no other parallel in history. So you've heard of sermons. Sermons have always been around. Letters have always been around. History books have always been around. But none of those were quite adequate to convey what God wanted. So he created a new kind of literature, what we call the Gospels. But it's basically an account. It's a, it's a kind of writing that combines several other kind of things. It combines history. It combines teaching, it combines theology, and it puts it together in a way that's never been done before. And so when we read the book of Matthew, it's not like anything else in the Bible, except for maybe Mark and Luke, and it's certainly not like anything else in history. So what is it about? The writer is making a case that the person in the Old Testament called the Messiah is Jesus. That's what Matthew's about. He's telling the Jews, you've been waiting for the Messiah. I'm going to show you that Jesus is that Messiah. So it has a lot of history in it, but history is not the main point. The theological point that Jesus is the Messiah is the main point. Now, the history is true, but it serves the bigger purpose. It has teaching in it about how to live, about how we're to navigate through this world, but that's not the main point. The main point is who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's a very Jewish book. Christianity started from the Jewish religion. The Old Testament is Jewish, Jesus is a Jew, and the book of Matthew makes that very clear that the Jewish connection is very prominent in the idea of the Messiah. So as we look through this, Matthew starts out with what's called a genealogy. If you've ever read through the Bible and you have to start somewhere and you start in the New Testament, 
you come to the genealogy first and you find that it's one of the most boring things to read. This person begat this person, and this person begat that person. And you're like, after about a verse or two, you're like, I get the point. I'm going to kind of skim through to the end to where it gets the story. We're actually just going to look at the, at the genealogy, and we're going to see three things from it. Uh, because the genealogy is actually like a who's who or best of. You have to know the Old Testament or the genealogy doesn't make sense. So the genealogy says, I'm going to throw some names out there that you're going to remember. So who's he writing to? He's writing to the Jewish people. The Jewish people, from the time they were born, heard the Old Testament regularly. They knew all the stories. And by the time you became an adult, you knew all the names, you knew all the stories. So when Matthew writes this book, when he writes this genealogy, and he's, and he's putting these names out, they would have said, oh, I remember that person. Oh, I remember that person. And so he's making connections between Jesus and all these names. So we're going to see three things. The promise of a Messiah, the historical Messiah, and the new family of the Messiah. The point here is, what's Jesus here for? Who is he and what's he here for? And what's that to do with us? And these lists of names actually show us. But we're going to have to look at them and we have to tie in a lot to the Old Testament. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. So first of all, the promise of the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards someone who God would choose to come to his people. From Genesis chapter 3, God tells Eve, you're going to have somebody born in your family who's going to fix everything. A chosen one. Someone who I'm going to select to fix the problems. A Messiah. So we have that concept in our minds, the chosen one, the Messiah. How many movies have we seen where the chosen one arrives to save his people? Why do we have that concept? Because in Genesis chapter 3, the parents of all of us were told that story. And through the Old Testament, it's repeated. Genesis, Exodus, Revelation, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, remember we read this morning, the son of righteousness will arise to come and fix everything, to save you. So the Messiah, they've been waiting for the Messiah. And let's read the story. Matthew chapter 1, to a people who've been waiting. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. There it is. 400 years of waiting, and this is what starts. Here he is, the Christ. Christ is a Greek word for chosen one. Messiah is a Hebrew word for chosen one. So Jesus is the Messiah the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we're going to read this list. Try not to be hypnotized by it. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Remember that? Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A whole bunch of stories in the Old Testament about that. They went down to Egypt, Joseph, the famine. Uh, that ends the book of Genesis. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab, and Amminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Remember Rahab? And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. The most famous person in the Old Testament after Moses is David the king. And David the king begot Solomon, the wisest man in the world. 
by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begat Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. These are kings, Old Testament kings. And if you go back, there's some bad people in here. These are murderers. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon, the exile. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shetiel, and Shealtiel begat Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the one who dedicated the new temple. Zerubbabel begot uh, Abiud, and Abiud begot Elikam, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Zadok, and Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot, begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, or Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon to the Christ are 14 generations. So three things again, the promise of the Messiah, the historical Messiah, and the new family of the Messiah. He's picking up in a story that's been told for a thousand years, two thousand years. He's saying this story began in Genesis, continued in Exodus, through the prophets, through first and second kings, through the stories of these kings, and David and Goliath, and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And now here's the next part. But what did the Old Testament tell us? What did it get us to? How, what's the status of the story? And when you read through the Old Testament, as we went through Malachi, we saw two things that the Old Testament shows. Oppression and sin. So far in the story, it's not good. It's actually terrible. God's story from Genesis to Malachi, has gotten very, very low. Oppression. In the prophets, they wouldn't listen to God, so they were conquered. That's what he says when we were carried away to Babylon. But when they came back from Babylon, it didn't get any better. Persia ruled over them. And then Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great. You know, Alexander the Great went to Jerusalem, and he wanted to destroy the temple. And they protected, they, they managed to talk him out of it. But he ruled, Alexander the Great ruled over Israel. He conquered them. Then when his kingdom broke up, other people came in, the Seleucid Empire came in and ruled over them. And you know what one of the kings did? He went into the temple and he sacrificed a pig. The most horrible thing a Jew could imagine was to go into the Holy of Holies, take an unclean animal, and sacrifice to Zeus. And then he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. This is all between Malachi and Matthew. This is what's going through their minds. And then when they passed away, there was a revolution that worked for a little while. What, what the Jews celebrated as Hanukkah. But then guess who showed up? Rome. And Rome conquered. So since Malachi has ended, it's got, gone from bad to worse. And all they've known is war desecration, oppression, 
And what are they looking for? The chosen one to redeem and save them. We don't know what it's like to have Roman soldiers, to have Greek soldiers walking through our churches, forcing preachers to do the wrong thing, sacrificing to false gods, killing us. We don't know what that's like, but the Jews did. And so when they looked for a Messiah, it was as real as the Roman soldier outside their house and hundreds of years of oppression. Where was God? Where was God when Antiochus Epiphanes was sacrificing that pig in the Holy of Holies? Where was God when they destroyed the temple? That's what they were asking. Where is God? I know he saved us before, and he said he would come back and save us, but where is he? So when Matthew says, this is the Christ, this wasn't a new thing for them. They'd been waiting for this. But something else in the Old Testament. See, oppression sometimes, most of the time, comes from other people. One thing the Old Testament shows us is that sin comes from the people. And the story from Genesis chapter 3 to Malachi chapter 4 and everything in between shows that people are bad. From their hearts, they do the wrong thing. And God can send prophets, and he can send miracles, and he can send the law, and he can send instruction, and he can send redeeming them from their, their oppressors, but the people never change. The Old Testament ends with what? Change or I'm going to send a curse. It's the last word of the Old Testament, a curse. So all through the Old Testament, all through these books, dozens and dozens of books, the story comes out from the Garden of Eden to the last book of the prophets. People have a sin problem. They can't do the right thing because they won't do the right thing. And God couldn't give them anything to make them do what was right. They continue to be what the Bible calls stiff-necked, rebellious. And it tells us that if it didn't change then, it doesn't change now. People are sinners. People sin against God and sin against each other. You're going to be oppressed in this life, and you're going to oppress others in this life. And we live in a culture and a society where everyone's a sinner and create systems where everyone is a sinner. And the Old Testament shows us that that's normal for people to do. And so when we get to this passage, we need something different than what was the Old Testament. And Jesus is what's different. See, the Old Testament is longer than the New Testament. You know why? Because a lot of history telling us what happens when people live the way they want to. And what happens when God tries to intervene and give them external sources, but doesn't change the heart. So the New Testament starts with Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Finally, the chosen one has shown up. And who is he? The son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, why do you pick those two names? Why not Moses? Why not Jeremiah? Why not Isaiah? These are great men, weren't they? Why the son of David and the son of Abraham? What is he telling us? What connection is he making between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What does it mean to be the son of David? Well, who was David? He was a king, wasn't he? There are a lot of kings. But only one king got a special promise from God. Second Samuel chapter 7, Nathan the prophet brings a word from God to David the king. This is about uh, a thousand years before this was written. David had a huge empire. David was the greatest king Israel ever had. 
God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God makes a promise to David that one of his kids, one of his great, 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 great grandkids from his own bloodline will be king like him forever. And here we have Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. We know this connection, but they didn't necessarily know the connection between the Messiah and the king. And so what, what the Bible is saying is, you, you remember the king that was going to live forever and reign forever? And you remember the chosen one who was going to save everybody? Jesus is both of those. He is the son of David. He is the eternal king. Now, why do you need an eternal king? I think in America, we know better than anybody what it looks like to have a new leader every four years, every eight years. Constant turnover. Change. We like one guy, next thing you know, he's gone. We don't like the next guy, and he's gone. Constantly turning over, good and bad. So David was a great king, wasn't he? And Solomon was a pretty good king. But you know what happens after that? Bad kings, good kings, bad kings. You ever had a good boss that you liked? Then he retired? And so you can never rely on a leader to make things right and keep them right. So you don't just need David the good king. You need David the good king who will always be the king, who will make things right and keep them right. So Hezekiah is mentioned here. Hezekiah did what was right. He tore down the false worship. He set up good worship. He brought back the law. He listened to God's word. But then you know what happened to Hezekiah? He died. And his son came in. And he was one of the worst kings ever. So what Jesus is saying, or what Matthew is saying about Jesus, is here's a king who will do right and will keep it right. A leader who will set up a political system that's just and righteous and will keep it that way. That's quite a promise, isn't it? An eternal king who sets it right and keeps it right. The Psalter, which is a, a paraphrase of the Psalm, says, Oh, wherefore do the nations rage? And kings and rulers strive in vain against the Lord of heaven, of earth and heaven, to overthrow Messiah's reign. See, there are going to be people who try to overthrow this king's reign. But the true Messiah will not be overthrown. So you see these political maneuverings and powerful people. The Bible says, wait till they meet Jesus. They're going to try. They're going to rage against him. And they're all going to fail. That's who the son of David is, a promise of an eternal king in the face of opposition, in the face of oppression. Now think what the Jews are thinking. They've seen kings come and go. They were freed from an empire by the Maccabees, who, who freed them from oppression, and then Rome came. But now Jesus is here, and as the son of David, to fulfill the promise of David, they're reminded that this king is not going anywhere. He's here to stay forever, which means he's still king. This is not just a Jewish story about the old. This means Jesus is sitting on the throne of David right now. And you better bow before him. 
The Old Testament says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed. You see, we're so used to catering to the powers that we can see, bosses, politicians, that we forget what the Bible has always said. You can't see Jesus, but that does not mean he's not the king. And every time you compromise for an earthly king, you've gone against the real king. And he is never going to go away. That person that you compromise your convictions and your, and your conscience to vote for, he'll be gone. Jesus won't. So this, just in these few words, he's calling us to a huge vision of kingship that never ends, which means put your weight behind the one who's not going anywhere and stop compromising for people who are. Worship Jesus, the eternal king. Don't worship the kings of this world. At best, you'll have 30 or 40 years. Jesus is a king forever. But then he says he's the son of Abraham. Well, of course he's the son of Abraham, because David was the son of Abraham. Why mention Abraham then? Since it's obvious, because he wants to remind you of the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament, between Jesus and promises that were made. And what promise was made to Abraham? See, a promise was made to David of eternal kingship. What was made to Abraham? Well, this goes all the way back to Genesis. You know, Abraham wasn't a Jew. He was a Chaldean. He was of Ur of the Chaldees. And God came to him and said, leave your people, leave your father and your mother and all your people, all the Chaldeans, leave your country behind and go to a place that you've never seen before. And that doesn't exist yet. And then one day you'll be something called, God has called the Jews, but we know them to be the Jews. You'll be that one day. But Abraham wasn't. So Abraham was not part of the Jewish nation. There was no Jewish nation. There was just him. But he was given a promise. And he lived off the promise. And what was the promise? Genesis chapter 12. You see how close Genesis 12 is to the beginning of the Bible? How far back Matthew was reaching? 2,000 years? God says to Abraham, leave your people because I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's quite a promise, isn't it? For an exile, for a someone who's left their country to go to the wilderness, God's like, don't worry. Your name will be the most famous name in the world. And everyone else in the world will be blessed because of you. That's the promise made to Abraham. And now we come to Jesus, who is the son of Abraham. In other words, the promise that was made to Abraham, who's going to fulfill that? Because right now, Israel's not fulfilling it. They're under the boot of Rome. But Jesus is going to fulfill it. What is he going to fulfill? He's going to make Abraham's name great. He's going to bless those that bless him, curse those who curse them, and he's going to bless all nations. How are all the nations going to be blessed? Through the chosen one, through the son of Abraham. A Messiah for everybody. Not just a Messiah for the Jews. A Messiah for everybody. You see, if it was just a Messiah for the Jews, it doesn't mean anything to us. 
It's just, oh, that's nice. It's a nice story. I'm glad God took care of Israel. Remember in Egypt, he took care of them. And then he took care of them after the, the exile. And now he's taking care of them again. But that's not what this is saying. By going back to the beginning, he's saying Jesus is going to be the chosen one, the Messiah, for everyone that Abraham was promised, which is everybody, all families of the earth. Are you a family of the earth? Then you will be blessed through Abraham, through the son of Abraham, which is Christ. And you know, Matthew gives us the key to this. This book has a main purpose, which is show who Jesus is. And you know what the last verses of, the, of Matthew say? They make it plain. Matthew chapter 28, which is the last chapter and the last verses. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, I'm the king. I'm the son of David. Go, therefore, and make disciples. See the application? Because he's the son of David, he gives us authority to go to everybody and say, Worship Jesus. But that's not all he says. Go and make disciples of all nations. Well, that was in the first verse, the son of Abraham. Son of David, obey me, worship me. Son of Abraham, go to everybody and tell them that. And the very last verses of Matthew, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see how Jesus spans everything? He goes all the way back to Abraham, and he goes all the way to the end of the age. And what's the purpose? That he would rule over everybody. Son of David, son of Abraham. So when we read the book of Matthew, this is where it's all, everything we get into, the details, Sermon on the Mount, miracles, healing people, this is what it's about. Jesus being the king and saving the world. Those are the bookends, and that tells us what's in the middle. But why this way? Wouldn't it be easier just to start with the end and say those things? Why this list of names? Do you, did you, were you really curious that Jehoshaphat had a son named Joram? Is that going to change your life? You're like, wow, I'm glad I know that so I can worship Jesus. So what's the point of this? It's not just a promise of Messiah. This passage shows us that he is a historical person. It's a historical Messiah. The Bible does not start the story of Jesus with once upon a time. Because when you hear things like once upon a time, you think, oh, this will be good. It'll be a good story. Contain some truths in it. Help us. That's not what God's here to do. He's here to tell us what happened. Not what we should do, but what actually happened. So he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you some historical people. Let me tell you some people who had kids. And their kids had kids. In other words, this is real. This is not a story. This is not a myth. These are real people who had real lives, who got married and had kids. And as a result of all of these people listed here, you have Jesus. What you know about Jesus is because of these people. That's what this genealogy it spends all this time saying. To get to Jesus, you have to know about these people. In other words, you don't know Jesus unless you know all these people. Your family, your history, your circumstances, and those of the people before you shape you. Just like they shape Jesus. That's what the Bible is telling us. 
you are a product of your past. And not just your past, your family's past, your country's past, the human race's past. African-American theologian Michael Joseph Brown says, Matthew makes clear to the reader that in the family history of Jesus, there is an ongoing influence of the past on the present. Jesus is who he is because of who his ancestors were. It's a lesson for us, isn't it? If Jesus couldn't escape or didn't try to escape his past, recorded it for all of us, why are we trying to? Why are we trying to erase our history? Because it's bad? Let's look at Jesus' past. You know, this is not a full list. It says 14 generations to 14 to 14. That doesn't cover the time. There's too much time in between. There's not enough people here to cover the hundreds and thousands of years. So he selected names, and that's why he tells us, he's, there's no, it's no secret. The Old Testament tells us the, sort of the in-between names. So that must mean that he picked these names on purpose. Of all the names that he didn't pick, why did he pick these? Because something about Jesus' family tells us about Jesus. And so they picked the names that had the most connection, that revealed the most about Jesus. We're not going to look at every single one of them, but we're going to see two kinds of people in Jesus' family. Sinners and the oppressed. That's Jesus' past. Look at the sinners. David, the king. He's the son of David. But who was David? David, the king, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. But why wasn't she the wife of Uriah anymore? Because David conspired and tricked Uriah into murder. Uriah, the most loyal servant he had, Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather, executed him. Used his power as the king that God had given him to kill Uriah so that he could have sexual relationships with a woman. Wow, that's quite a patriarch, isn't it? That's someone you want to forget. That's like tracing your family back and find out that you have Nazis in your family. Turns out your great-great-grandfather was Adolf Hitler. Would you record that? Why isn't God covering this up? Because David the king was a sinner, and Jesus came from a family of sinners. Real sins. Not theoretical, real sins. It gets worse. Uh, verse 9, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz. Now, Ahaz doesn't mean anything to you, right? You probably don't remember who he was. He was a king of Israel. He didn't kill one of his soldiers. You know who he killed? His child. He offered his own child to the god Molech, and he burned him alive. That's Jesus' family. And then one of his great-grandkids, Rehoboam, did the same thing. Burned their child to sacrifice to a false god. Jesus' family is worse than your family. More messed up than your family but he doesn't hide any of it. So when Matthew records this, he's saying, don't forget about the bad stuff. In fact, make a point to remember it. You can't know who Jesus is until you know how bad his family is. Because if you know 
about sinners and you have a promise of a Savior, you need to know the details. How big is the Savior? Who is he going to save? Is he going to save the good people who did bad things? Or is he going to save the child murderers? The sexual abusers? The oppressors? How big is the Savior? Who is Jesus coming to save? He's coming to save his own family first, isn't he? To save the people who are the worst people in the world. And God wants you to know that because Jesus' family was so bad is why Jesus came into this world. And to ignore the past and the sins of the past is to have no clue why the present exists. And if you don't understand why Jesus' family is so bad, you don't know why Jesus came to this earth. The past affects the present. And because Jesus' family was so bad, we know how great of a Savior he was. Because one thing we know that everyone knows is that sinners need a Savior. And so the parameters are set. Have you sacrificed your child alive to a fire? That's who Jesus is going to save, so he'll save you, won't he? Yeah, you may be a liar. You may be selfish. You may be self-centered. You may be an oppressor. Jesus will save you. Just like he saved David. The sexual abuser. The murderer. That's his family. He'll save you. But there's another kind of person that's carefully chosen for women. Now, traditionally, you don't need women in a genealogy. Because at this time, no one really cared about the women. Because the kingship was determined on the male line. So if you want to establish Jesus as the son of David, the king, you only need the, the, the men's name. But there are four women mentioned. But they're not the women you would think you have the son of Abraham, you would think you would mention Abraham's wife, right? Sarah. But, but he doesn't mention Sarah. He doesn't mention Rebecca. He doesn't mention the, the women like Deborah, Moses' family. Why doesn't he mention them? Because everyone knows they're good people. Everyone knows that Jesus is going to take care of the good people, the people who stood up for truth, Deborah who gave out righteous judgment when no one else would. So he picks four names that you wouldn't think. Look at these names. First one, verse 3, Judah begot Peraz and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. But he had a kid by her. Here's what happened. Here's the, the gross story. Judah and Tam- found Tamar and married his son. The son died. Tamar was supposed to be cared for by being married to his next son. But Judah said, no, you just live with me and you'll be okay. So Tamar went out, covered her face, and posed as a prostitute and tricked Judah into having a son with her. That's messed up, isn't it? That's a complicated family history. Prostitution, incest, trickery. So when it says here, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez and Zerah were products of this mess, and yet they were part of Jesus' family. Tamar was oppressed by Judah, and so she had to go outside the bounds to find security because no one else was going to take care of her. She had no help, so she resorted to prostitution and trickery 
in order to find security. And Jesus says, remember her. Tamar wasn't even a Jew. She was a Gentile. Tamar, Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth, Bathsheba, all of these were Gentiles, outsiders, foreigners, foreigners in a time where your bloodline determined your future. Bloodline when uh, uh, they were foreigners, when Jesus said, out of your blood, I'll save you. Why did he mention four women who all were outsiders? Tamar was not a Jew. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And yet, these are the only four women that Jesus mentions. What's his point here? I will bless all families through you. In case you thought it was just for some people, God says, no, it's for everybody. Let me make it very clear who it's for. It's for Tamar, the Canaanite. It's for Rahab from Jericho, which I destroyed. It's the Hittites. It's the Moabites. It's the Philistines. It's even the Americans. You see, we think God loves America. He loves America just as much as he loves Canaan and Persia and Rome. We're not special. We'll go the way of all of the... You know why you don't know where Moab is? Because Moab is gone. And if this world goes on for long enough, America will be just another name in a history book. And what this is saying is that's okay, because God saves everybody, even Americans. If he saves Tamar, the Moabite, the, the, the Canaanite, he'll save an American. These women were oppressed. Does God care about oppressed people? Here's the answer. Tamar, forced by her own family to take extreme measures. Rahab, a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute. And a, the whole city was destroyed. She was not part of the, the inside crowd. The wife of Uriah. You know who Uriah's wife was? She was a sexual assault victim. When the king of Israel, who will end up murdering people, tells you to come to his bed, guess what you do? If you want to live, you do it. You see, we've got this idea that Bathsheba and David had this sort of like romantic relationship. No. A man in power used his power to steal a woman from her husband, to force her to be his wife. What do you call that? That's called sexual abuse. So Bathsheba was a product she became part of the family line through sexual abuse. So why does Jesus mention her? For all the other people who've been products of sexual abuse. If you've been a product or if you know people who've been sexually abused, Jesus knows. He doesn't forget. He doesn't push him away. He doesn't cover it up. He doesn't joke about it. He puts it in the family history. He remembers it. And lets everyone know that this is the kind of Messiah we have who proudly owns his family, even the ones that everyone else casts aside. Moral outsiders. What's the point? 
Jesus is the Savior of everybody. And we know how Christ-like we are by how much we accept everybody. And the minute you start putting divisions between people, you've left this genealogy. When you start ranking people or nations or groups of people or economic status, you're not being like Christ. Jesus came to save everybody. That's the kind of Messiah he is. His family includes everybody. The whole Old Testament is about how bad people are and how good God is. And this is showing us the connection between those two things. If everyone's so bad and God is so good, what's the connection? Someone who came from a bad family and the good family. Someone who's both a product of rape, prostitution, murder, and is a product of the divine heaven. That's Jesus, 100% part of his family and 100% God. And here's the story. This is where it starts. So the real question is how do we get into this family? Because he lets anybody in. So how do we get in? Because you notice where the story ends, where where the genealogy ends? It ends with Jesus. There's no more bloodline after this. There's no more being born or married into this family. You don't get to join this family by moving to the country. So how do you get in if the, if the bloodline ends? What's next? You see, Tamar, she just had to marry in. Bathsheba, yeah, it was terrible, but she was part of the family through marriage. But we can't marry into Jesus' family. We can't move into the country of Jesus. So how do we get in the family? There has to be a new beginning. A new start. Not like the old start. Not like the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Look at the first words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know, that's not the first time those words have been mentioned. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, blessed them, and called them mankind the day they were created. Genesis chapter 5, the book of the genealogy of Adam. The new creation, the creation that had never been before, the creation of man. And here's his story. And here we come to Matthew chapter 1. The same words, the book of the genealogy, not of Adam, Jesus Christ. The word here for genealogy is a Greek word, genesis. You know how we pronounce genesis? Genesis. You know why we call it genesis? Because it was the beginning. So this is the book of the genesis of a new family, a new creation, a new line of people. You see, the world is too broken to fix. Jesus didn't come to fix the world. The Old Testament shows us that the world is too broken for a prophet to fix it. It's too broken for a king to fix it. It's too broken. Too many things are wrong. There's a core problem with this world, with people and the creation we live in, that cannot be fixed. So the only solution is a new creation. Not a fix on the old one, but a new one. And so we have a new genesis, a new beginning, promised in Isaiah, for behold, I create new heavens and new earth, 
and the former should not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. The Old Testament was about God trying to fix this world through righteousness, through law, through prophets. God didn't make any mistakes, but it showed us that it couldn't work. The law can't fix the world. So God says, fine, I'll start over with Jesus, a new creation in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Where does this new creation come from? Not through blood, not through marriage, not through nationality, but in Christ. A new beginning, a new genesis in Christ for everybody. Do you want to be accepted by God despite what you've done? Do you want to be renewed and so that your past is not going to dictate your future? Is that what you want? There's only one way to get that. Join Jesus' family and he'll make you new. It's the only way. And how do you get into this family? You see, the Jews thought they could get in by being born in. John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious people, this is Matthew chapter 3, coming to his baptism to say, we want to follow, we want to be part of the family, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. We are a son of Abraham. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The most religious people in the country were banking on their heritage. Is that what we're doing? No, no, we don't think we're children of Abraham. No, but we just think we're good people. We're not like those other people. We're not like those other countries. We're not like those other religions. We're children of God. John the Baptist says, God will raise up people from these stones. And he did. Didn't he create something new out of a stone? A heart of stone. He created new life, a heart of flesh. He raised up children from the stones. He brought people who were dead in their sins. He brought them into Christ and created new creatures, new families. How do you get in? You don't do anything. You can't, you've already done enough. We've done enough. We've broken everything. God doesn't want us to do anything more. All we bring to the solution is our problem. Romans chapter 4, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise, what promise? That he would save all people, might be sure to all the seed, the seed of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. How? How did he become our father? We're not Jews. By faith. Don't you want to be part of the family that will be blessed? You get in by faith. Faith alone. You bring nothing else to the table. God wants none of your works. He's provided them already. Christ is the Savior, and he'll save you by himself or not at all. So we simply trust Christ. 
put aside our good works, put aside our bad works, put aside our families, our education, our history, put aside everything and say, Christ, either you save me or I'm lost. And when we say that, God promises to bring us into the family of Abraham. The old family of Jesus with its terrible problems and oppression and sin was just a hint of the new family, which includes all people. Revelation chapter 7. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Who? Who was in this great multitude? Jews? All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Not to Abraham, not to David, not to themselves, but to one who brought them in. The fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis through Christ into heaven. All nations. What should the church look like? What the Bible looks like. Our church should look like the family of God. Who's in Jesus' family? Everybody. Who should be in our church? Everybody who believes in Christ regardless of their nation, tribe, people, tongues. The last verses of the Bible, recalling the promise of David, says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you. I am the root and the offspring of David. These are the last words that Jesus gave to us. He says, remember David. Remember the promises. And the spirit and the bride says, come. And let him, him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whosoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. All you need is a desire. All you need is to realize that you are a sinner. And Jesus says, yes, that's who I came for. Tamar, David, came for you. I'm inviting you into the family. You're welcome. Everybody's welcome. Just give up on everything else. Trust Christ, and he promises, like he promised Abraham, and he promised David, he promises us, we will be made into a new creature in a new family. Let's pray.